Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. And this is People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. It's just me in the studio today and we've got a full lineup. Hope to get through at least 11 books. Hopefully we'll get through all of them in the hour. Next week we're going to have two guests in the studio for the entire hour. It's um, literary festival time in South Africa, so a lot of international authors and loads of South African authors are making their way to Cape Town this weekend and to Johannesburg for next weekend for the two big literary festivals, Franschuk this weekend, Kingsmead next. And we will be joined in the studio by... Two authors that Jonathan Ball Publishers will be bringing here. The first is no stranger to Chai FM. That's Heather Morris. We interviewed her last year about her book, The Tattooist of Auschwitz. The second author is new to the studios here at Chai FM, but I'm sure he's a well-known name to many of our readers. That's Simon Sebag Montefiore. He is the author of a number of non-fiction historical books and three novels and he also has a child a child a kids book uh, that uh, he has author also written he's the um author of few books on russian history he wrote a book called jerusalem the biography and then three novels set in stalinist russia we will be in conversation with Heather Morris and Simon Sebag Montefiore, and the topic is going to be writing history. So we'll be picking their brains and looking into the writing process from the view of historical writing. And today we're going to start off with a cookery book. The reason that I'm going to start off with this book is because it is a record breaker. It was released in the UK a few weeks ago. And it became the fastest-selling non-fiction book in UK publishing history. It has sold hundreds of thousands, or it's broken the 100,000 limit. I think even the 200,000 limit uh, number in just a few weeks. The book is based on a, a, a site. It's called Pinch of Nom. And it is... The UK's most visited food blog, Pinch of Nom. The book is called Pinch of Nom, and it's a hundred slimming homestyle recipes. The authors are the two brains and uh, behind the Pinch of Nom blog. And slimming food has never tasted so good. This is for anyone who follows food blogs. The must-have first cookbook from the UK's most visited food blog. I suppose. Running the most popular food blog does give you a starter's advantage to get your book on the bestsellers lists. Sharing delicious home-style recipes with a hugely engaged online community, PinchofNom.com has helped millions of people to cook well and lose weight. The Pinch of Nom cookbook has helped novice and experienced home cooks enjoy exciting, flavorful, and satisfying meals. Accessible to everyone by not including diet points. All of these recipes are compatible with the principles of 
the UK's most popular diet programs. There are a 100 incredible recipes in the book, 33 of which are vegetarian. Each recipe has been tried and tested by 20 pinch of non-community members to ensure it is healthy, full of flavor, and incredibly easy to make. Whether it's Cumberland pie, Mediterranean chicken orzo, Mexican chili beef, or chicken balti, this food is so good you'll never guess the calorie count. The book does not include values from mainstream diet programs as these are ever-changing. Instead, the recipes are labeled with helpful icons to guide you towards the ones that suit you best. Whether you're looking for something veggie, fancy, a fake away, or you want to feed a family of four or have limited space to spare. The book is Pinch of Nom, a hundred slimming homestyle recipes. It's beautifully made. It's uh, beautifully published, produced, and it is the best-selling non-fiction title in the UK of all time. It is published by Bluebird and it, it Bluebird Books for Life, and it is available in the shops right now. So, we are following after the UK because it was published there earlier than in South Africa, but it is available now in South Africa, and it is the type of book that foodies will be talking about for a long time. We'll jump into fiction straight after this ad break. Book of Love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. The next book I'm going to talk about is a local book. It was actually published in South Africa for the first time a few years ago um, in 2014, but then it was published under the title Double Spell. It was an Afrikaans book. It's now been translated into English, and it's called Blind Side. The publisher is Tafelbach, and the author is Vilma Adriansa. She might not be a name that is well-known to English South African readers, but she is a huge best-selling author in Afrikaans. Her titles regularly sell in, ex- in, in excess of 10,000 copies in Afrikaans when the books are published. And for the first time now, we have this book in English so that English-speaking South Africans can also enjoy this crime writer who is quite a stranger to the English-speaking readership. Vilna Adriansa was born in May 1958 in the Kalahari. She grew up in Worcester and matriculated in 1976. Thereafter, she completed a BA and BA Honours degrees in Sociology and Development Administration at the University of Stellenbosch. In 1981, she married Dion Adriansa. They lived in Guiani for three and a half years before they moved to Cape Town in 85. During the next four years, she studied psychology through UNISA. They lived in Durbanville for 27 years. During those years, she commuted to her husband in Nigeria and also Botswana where he was working on different projects they have three sons her first novel An Ungewone Belechung was published in 2001 her best known novels are Rebecca in 2004, Met an der 2006 Die Buch van Esther 2008 and Fier Seisunde Kind 2010 in 2011, she completed a master's degree in creative writing at, the, at UCT. She wrote a novel, a Klein Lever, as her thesis, and it was published in 2012. 
Now her book, Double Spell, which in English is Blindside, is published in English. And so she is accessible to the more South African readers. The South Africa's thriving underground is dark and diverse, a nest of brutal thugs commanded by shady international operators. Their reach spans the globe. Their grasp touches every part of society. Still mourning the death of her father, her guiding light, and an honest cop if ever there was one, Lieutenant Ellie McKenna accepts a case to infiltrate Cape Town's criminal world. Hired to protect the young girlfriend of the high-flying, dirty-dealing nightclub owner, Enzio Allegretti, she's acutely aware that one false move could be fatal. But how do you protect a girl when her entire social circle is full of dodgy characters? And how do you stay out of danger while living in a den of snakes? Who do you trust? The loving boyfriend in a dubious line of work? The concerned family with connections in all the wrong places? Or the inscrutable head of security? Ellie knows full well that in this job, the brave often end up dead, blindsided by a faceless enemy. And all the time, she is trying to follow the police investigation into the death of her father, who was also a cop. Set in Cape Town, as you heard from Vilna Adrianza's biography, she's had a lot of experience living all across Africa. She has spent many years in Cape Town, so she knows what she writes about. And this is quite an exciting novel, a South African crime fiction novel. Vilna Adrianza is phenomenally successful in Afrikaans. In Afrikaans, she sells the same volume of books as our most famous current South African crime writer, crime thriller writer, who's Dion Mayer. Dion Mayer's books sell phenomenally well in Afrikaans. Vilna Adrianza's, she's, she's in line with him. Dion is published internationally for his English translations. Volna is now reaching English, the English speaking, the English reading uh, public in South Africa. I'm just correcting something I said earlier on. This is her second book to be translated into English in this series. The first one was End Game. Blindside is a sequel, but it's a standalone book as well. If you, you can read it as a standalone, so it's the second book to be translated into English, featuring Ellie McKenna, and we're looking at the Cape. Criminal Underworld Now the next book we're going to look at We're going to go to Non-fiction The book's called Midnight in Chernobyl The Untold Story of the World's Greatest Nuclear Disaster It's written by Adam Higginbotham It's published by Bantam Press (laughs) Most people Have heard of Chernobyl This book is the dramatic Untold story of the Chernobyl nuclear power Plant disaster Based on original reporting, a lot of interviews with people in Russia, and new archival research. 26th April 1986 was a turning point in world history. The full story of the events that started that morning in the control room of reactor number four of the Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station has never been told until now. Drawing on hundreds of hours of interviews, and they are so detailed, Conducted over the course of more than 10 years, as well as letters, unpublished memoirs, and documents from recently declassified archives, Adam Higgins-Botham 
tells the full dramatic story of the Chernobyl disaster and its fallout, bringing the tragedy to life through the eyes of the men and women who witnessed it firsthand. The result, Midnight in Chernobyl, is a masterful non-fiction thriller, a chronicle of, an ast- of astonishing heroics, maddening incompetence, and the book is the definitive account of an event that did change world history. I want to read just the first few pages after this ad break, just to give you a sense of the narrative thrust of this nonfiction. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. We meant to be talking about a book called Midnight in Chernobyl, The Untold Story of the World's Greatest Nuclear Disaster by Adam Higginbotham. I just want to read the prologue. It's not very long, but it gives you a sense of the, the, the dramatic narrative energy of a nonfiction book. Prologue. This is the prologue. Saturday, April 26th, 1986, 4.16 p.m. Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station, Ukraine. Senior Lieutenant Alexander Logachev loved radiation the way other men love their wives. Tall and good-looking, 26 years old, with close-cropped blonde hair and ice-blue eyes, Logachev had joined the Soviet Army when he was still a boy. They had trained him well. The instructors from the military academy outside Moscow taught him with lethal poisons and unshielded radiation. He travelled to the testing grounds of Semipalantinsk in Kazakhstan and to the desolate East Urals Trace, where the fallout from a clandestine radioactive accident still poisoned the landscape. Eventually, Logachev's training took him even to the remote and forbidden, forbidden islands of Novaya Zemlya, high in the Arctic Circle, ground zero for the detonation of the terrible Tsar Bomba, the largest thermonuclear device in history. Now, as the lead radiation reconnaissance officer of the 427th Red Banner Mechanized Regiment of the Kiev District Civil Defense Force, Logachev knew how to protect himself and his three-man crew from gamma rays and hot particles by doing their work just as the textbooks dictated, by trusting his dosimetry equipment and, when necessary, reaching for the nuclear bacterial and chemical warfare medical kits stored in the cockpit of the armored car. But he also believed that the best protection was psychological. Those men who allowed themselves to fear radiation were most at risk, but those who came to love and appreciate its spectral presence, to understand its caprices, could endure even the most intense gamma bombardment and emerge as healthy as before. As he sped through the suburbs of Kiev that morning, at the head of a column of more than 30 vehicles summoned to an emergency at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, Lokachev had every reason to feel confident. The spring air blowing through the hatches of his armoured scout car carried the scent of the trees and freshly cut grass. His men, gathered on the parade ground just the night before for their monthly inspection, were drilled and ready. At his feet, the battery of radiological detection instruments, including a newly installed electronic device twice as sensitive as the old model, murmured softly, revealing nothing unusual in the atmosphere around them. But as they finally approached the plant later that morning, it became clear that something extraordinary had happened. The alarm on the radiation decimeter first sounded as they passed the concrete signpost marking the perimeter of the power station grounds, 
and the lieutenant gave orders to stop the vehicle and log their findings. 51 Roentgen per hour. As they waited, there was, as, if they waited, there was just 60 minutes. If, sorry, if they waited there for just 60 minutes, they would all absorb the maximum dose of radiation permitted Soviet troops during wartime. They drove on, following the line of high-voltage transmission towers that marched towards the horizon in the direction of the power plant. Their readings climbed still further before falling again. As the armored car rumbled along the concrete bank of the station's coolant canal, the outline of the fourth unit of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant finally became visible, and Nogachev and his crew gazed forward in silence. The roof of the 20-story building had been torn open, its upper levels blackened and collapsed into heaps of rubble. They could see shattered panels of ferro-concrete, tumbled blocks of graphite, and here and there, the glinting metal casings of fuel assemblies from the core of a nuclear reactor. A cloud of steam drifted from the wreckage into the sunlit sky. But they had orders to conduct a full reconnaissance of the plant. The armoured car crawled anti-clockwise around the complex at 10 kilometres an hour. Sergeant Vlaskin called out the radiation readings from the new instruments, and Nogachev scribbled them down on a map, hands drawn on a sheet of parchment paper in ballpoint pen and coloured marker. One round again, an hour, then two, then three. They turned left, and the figures began to rise quickly, ten, thirty, fifty, one hundred. Two hundred fifty round again an hour, the sergeant shouted. His eyes widened. Comrade Lieutenant, he began and pointed at the radi- radiometer. Logachev looked down at the digital readout and felt his scalp prickle with terror. 2,080 Röntgen an hour, an impossible number. Logachev struggled to remain calm and remember the textbook to conquer his fear, but his training failed him, and the lieutenant heard himself screaming in panic at the driver, petrified that the vehicle would stall. Why, why, why are you going this way? Why are you out of your mind, he yelled. If this thing dies, we'll be corpses in 15 minutes. That's the prologue to Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster by Adam Higginbotham. It is meticulously researched, 10 years in the making, fortunes of interviews, archival information that has been made public in recent years. It is quite an important book about what happened, not quite it's the definitive account of what happened in Chernobyl in 1986, April the 26th of 1986. The next book we're going to look at, also staying with nonfiction, is an environmental book. The author, Nathaniel Rich, normally writes novels. Here he's written a book about the environment. It's called Losing Earth, and subtitled The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change. Thirty years ago, we had a chance to save the planet. The science of climate change was settled. This is early 1980s. The world was ready to act. Almost nothing stood in our way except ourselves. Nathaniel Rich wrote an article about the environment, what was known in the 1980s, what could have happened if governments did cooperate. The article was published in a magazine, he's now expanded that into uh, 
a short 210-page book. That we came so close as a, as a civilization to breaking our suicide pact with fossil fuels can be credited to the efforts of a handful of people, scientists from more than a dozen disciplines, political appointees, congressmen, economists, philosophers, and anonymous bureaucrats. They were led by a hyperkinetic lobbyist and a guileless atmospheric physicist who, at severe personal cost, tried to warn humanity of what was coming. And this was 30 years ago. They risked their careers in a painful, escalating campaign to solve the problem, first in scientific reports, later through conventional avenues of political persuasion, and finally with the strategy of public shaming. The efforts were shrewd, passionate, robust, and they failed. What follows is their story and ours. It's about lost chances. What caused the knowledge of what would happen from 1989 onwards to be ignored? And then what we currently face today. Just yesterday I heard a report uh, about the possibility of the extinction of a million species from the face of the earth in the next few years if there are no changes to the way that we treat the environment. Uh, they found at the bottom, at the deepest point of the ocean, the Mariana Trench, plastic rubbish. Uh, I just saw another headline this morning that 414, I think there's a tons of plastic rubbish on the beaches of a very isolated Pacific island. There are changes. We are changing the world around us. If people knew this 30 years ago, and action could have been taken, and all we have at the moment is the Paris Treaty, which is non-binding and being made fun of by many, many governments around the world. And we've got the rich world trying to dictate to the developing world what to do, and the developing world has a right to say, we also need to develop, we also need to create power stations. You know, When you're rich and you've done it all already, and you've polluted the environment, you in a in a compromised position to lecture to the rest of the world. These are issues. But if we don't take action, we could be living in a world that's altered fundamentally. So this is Losing Earth by Nathaniel Rich, the decade we could have saved climate change. What we knew, what was done, and what wasn't done. Published by Picador, and it is also a very important book. So those were two books which both touch on the environment. Science, man's meddling with the atmosphere or the, inv the, the world. Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higgins, both of them, and Losing Earth by Nathaniel Rich. Now for something a lot lighter. A novel. This is one of those heartbreaking and tear jerking books. It's called The Six Loves of Billy Bins and it's written, the author is Richard Lumsden and it's published by Tinder Press. At well over a hundred years old, Billy Bins believes he's the oldest man in Europe and knows his days are numbered. But Billy has a final wish. He wants to remember what love feels like one last time. As he looks back at the, at the relationships that have coloured his life and the events that shaped the century, 
he recalls a lifetime of heartbreak and hope. From his childhood on the cobbled streets of West London to the trenches of the First World War, from a sweet-smelling bakery, shop, to the mysterious stone circles in the Derbyshire hills, Billy struggles to remember each and every person who made his heart skip a beat. But he knows there's something missing, and he wants to fill in the gaps. The book is The Six Loves of Billy Bins. It's the story of an ordinary man's life and an enchanting novel which takes you on an epic yet intimate journey that will make you laugh, cry, reflect on the universal turmoil of love and just give you tears and a smile at the end of the book. So that is The Six Loves of Billy Bins by Richard Lumsden. The next book is highly anticipated an excellently written novel. Mark Haddon is famous, especially for one book that he wrote, although he has a few books to his name. Everyone knows him for his novel, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night Time. It has sold millions of copies. It's been turned into a, 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 theatric, a, a theatrical play continues to be read in schools and by audiences all around the world. Mark Haddon has also written a book of poetry and uh, three other books, novels or short story collections. Now he has just published his new book, The Porpoise. Mark Haddon is a writer of great talent. He's Sentences are styled, they are beautifully constructed. The ideas behind the story and the narrative thrust of the story itself, all he's a master, all on the level of a master class. And the purpose is no different. Essentially, it's a retelling of a Shakespearean play that Shakespeare wrote both when he was old towards the end of his life but also with a collaborator with a partner so it wasn't fully a Shakespearean play from beginning to end and that is the play called Pericles which is set in the ancient world and the story of Pericles is the story of the Prince of Troy he is looking for a wife there is a city close by. This is all in the the Middle East. But in the times when Greece was Greek, the the Greek culture and the Greek language were the dominant language and cultures of the Levant. In the city of Antioch, which as do as we know because of Hanukkah and Antiochus, that was he gave his name to the city, we have the king Antioch and he has a daughter. His daughter is ready to be married, but the king has a challenge that any suitor has to pass if they want to marry his daughter. If they fail the challenge, they're killed. If they pass the challenge, then he's promised his daughter's hand in marriage. The challenge is a riddle. The answer to the riddle is that King Antioch has had an incestuous relationship with his daughter, the princess. Pericles of, of, of Tyre, Pericles of Tyre, the city of Tyre, which is on the Lebanese coast, goes to Antioch. He has the riddle, 
and now he's in a double bind. He knows the answer. If he doesn't answer, he'll be killed. If he answers, he will still be killed because he'll be accusing the king of having an incestuous love affair with his own daughter. Pericles asks for time to consider the answer and is given 40 days. He flees the city. Antioch the king then sends assassins out after Pericles. Pericles is fleeing. He flees to the city of Tarsus, which is experiencing a terrible drought and a famine. The people are dying. He has food stores on his ship. So he gives the food to the city. And the king and the queen of Tarsus are grateful, eternally grateful for him having saved them. The assassins are coming after him. So he's on the run. This is the beginning of the book, the, 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 the play of Pericles. Uh, It's a true Shakespearean tragedy and lots and lots of other things do happen, but this is the springboard. That's part of the story of the porpoise by Mark Haddon. The rest of the story is modern day. The the book starts with the most tragic, tragic uh, airplane accident. A super wealthy man who is almost beyond citizenship has houses all around the world. Philippe is holidaying in France with his pregnant wife and a friend. Philippe has to leave the holiday house and he has to go to Paris. The friend is flying back to London and he's going to take Maya, Philippe's wife, pregnant wife, with him on the plane. He's an amateur pilot and he's flying into a storm. He crashes through the through the storm he's killed Maya survives the crash but she's about to die a a doctor happens to see through the mist that something happened there was a crash he goes and he finds Maya barely alive makes sure that she's being given she's given care the baby is Delivered, the baby is fine. Philippe is informed about this terrible tragedy. He comes to Paris and his daughter Angelica and him are now alone in the world. He is petrified that Angelica will one day be taken away from him and he secludes her in a house and when she becomes older he starts an incestuous relationship with his own daughter reflecting in the modern day the king of Antioch and his own daughter she wants to escape but she isn't able to one day a young man who sells whose father sold art to her father Philippe comes to the house and he's intrigued by the stories about this beautiful girl who's been raised in isolation she asks him to take her away from her father he attempts to and Philippe attacks him she then deals with her trauma in the only way she knows 
she withdraws into herself. Angelica, the daughter, the abused daughter, withdraws into herself. And then the parallel narrative is the narrative of this man, Darius, who came to save her. And the story of Pericles is imposed upon him. And he carries the Pericle narrative on his shoulders through the rest of the book, The Porpoise. We'll be back with a few more comments on this book and a number of other books straight after this break. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. Just to finish off, The Porpoise by Mark Haddon. Uh, the title of the book, The Porpoise, is the name of Pericles' ship uh, when he sails around the Mediterranean, uh, fleeing from the king of Antioch on his way to Tarsus. It is a beautifully written book, the observations of the people's thoughts and their, uh, the, the, the issues that they face, the challenges, are also beautifully put across. Uh, the Guardian in their review said that this is the type of book that is going to be mentioned just before every major literary long list is announced. And I agree with that. It is a beautifully written book. It is literary. It is a retelling of a more obscure Shakespearean play. Uh, so if you are going to read the book, you know, before you start, just quickly look up on Wikipedia, Pericles, Shakespeare play. And you'll familiar, you can familiarize yourself with the basic storyline because I think that actually adds to the enjoyment of the reading experience of a book that is based on a Shakespearean storyline. But it is, it is a literary book, but it is really worth the read and it's worth the wait from Mark Haddon. The next book is something that everyone's talking about. If you haven't read it yet, your book club definitely has it or your best friend has told you to read it. Reese Witherspoon chose it as her Book Club read last year, I think, in October. She's bought the rights to turn it into a film. It's Where the Crawdads Sing, and it's by Delia Owens. What's from a South African point of view interesting about Delia Owens is that she lived with her husband in Africa for 20 years, from the 1970s to the 1990s. Not in South Africa, I think in Zambia. And so she is familiar with the African continent. And she has written a few memoirs and non-fictions about that time, Secrets of the Savannah, The Eye of the Elephant, and The Cry of the Kalahari. But for this book, Where the Crawdads Sings, Where the Crawdads Sing, she's set the book in the American South, in a specific part of the American South, just by the North Carolina coast, where the land turns to marsh and swamp. It's a no man's land that over hundreds of years from the 1600s until where the, when the book is set the, 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 until 1970, so the beginning of the 20th century all the way to 1970, it's been a no man's land that's been taken over by the dispossessed. Those who have reason to run away, fugitives, pirates, freed slaves, poor whites. The story is about one girl, Catherine, known as Kia, Kia Clark. The book starts with her memory of her mother leaving. Her 
father came from a wealthy family who lost all their money and most of their land. The only land that her father's family had left was this marsh, this very marginal marsh and swamp land. There was a small broken down, tumbled down cottage somewhere on that land. He fought in World War One uh, in the American Army, and he was totally traumatized from that. When he went back to America, he went to New Orleans to find a wife. He managed to fall in love and have the woman fall in love with him, a woman from a very wealthy family. She moved with him to North Carolina after his ability to make a living in New Orleans failed and her family were against the marriage, but she moved with her husband back to North Carolina and he, introdu- and he presents her with this tumble-down cottage in the marshland. They have um, five children, but he's a very abusive husband. He gets drunk on the money that is paid out from the army as part of his pension, and he gambles. His wife puts up with this until she can no longer put up with it. And this is the opening scene when Kia recalls her mother putting on her fake alligator shoes, packing a suitcase, walking down the path, turning the corner, and leaving the family. A number of the older siblings have already run away from this terribly dysfunctional and abusive household. Kia is left with one brother and her father, and that brother also leaves. And she's only seven when it's just her and her father alone. And she, and then her father disappears. He never comes back. And she has, from a young age, around nine or ten, she has to fend for herself in the marsh area of the coast of North Carolina. And she actually says, Mother Nature became my mother. And she learns from nature. She starts a collection of things that she finds, the shells, the plants, the birds, the bird feathers. And she she doesn't have the ability to name them because she's not educated. She goes to school for one day and then she refuses to go to school. And when the social services or the truant officer comes, she hides from them. And she's a feral child, but she has such a soul and such a sensitivity. There are two boys from the close, the, the, the nearby town who take an interest in her. One, Tate, who's also interested in nature. He goes on to university and he becomes, uh, he gets a PhD in studies of the marshlands in this specific area. And then there is Chase Andrews, the most popular boy in the town, the golden boy of the nearby town. His parents own the car dealership. And he also is very interested in Kia. Then there is another narrative in the book. At the beginning of the book, this man, Chase Andrews, is found dead. And there's an investigation into who killed him. And the two storylines are really part of the same storyline, but they're just plotted like that throughout the book, meet 
and obviously Kia Clark, who is called the Marsh Girl, is suspected of having murdered Chase Andrews. It's a very, very beautifully written book. It's a very special book. Uh, is it feasible for a 10-year-old girl to have raised herself in the marshlands of North Carolina? Maybe not. But I think that's part of Delia Owen's talent, is that she does make it feel extremely possible that this could actually have happened. The nature writing is absolutely beautiful. And care learning from Mother Nature is also such a beautiful, beautiful part of the story. So that is where the crawdads sing. I don't want to say any more because it will give too much away. It is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful story book. It's classic book club read. Uh, if you like the Poisonwood Bible, you'd love where the crawdads sing. It is... It is a great book. I'm going to try to get through the remaining books on my table straight after this ad break. Book of Love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. Pick and Pay and Norwood Harper have these pocket savings, sweet deals just for you. Fries, meat, free and barbecue style. Sausages at 29 rand, 25 rand 99 per kilo. Pick and pay kosher chicken flatties assorted a very low 69.99 per kilo. Pick and pay kosher regular classic cola, two liters for just 9 rand 99 each. Pick and pay frozen petite hake fillets is 69 rand 99 per kilo. Catch these and many more specials in store. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Norwood Harper. And only while stocks last. Pick and pay Harper Norwood. The best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. People of the book, we've got a number of books still to get through. So we're going to first do the non-fiction book that I've got in my hands. The book is The Moment of Lift. How Empowering Women Changes the World. And it's written by Melinda Gates. She's married to Bill Gates. And with, together with her husband, who's one of the richest men in the world, she is a co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So the book is about philanthropy. The moment of lift is when you're sitting in an aeroplane on the tarmac and the plane is getting ready to take off. For the last 20 years, Melinda Gates has been on a mission to find solutions for people with the most urgent needs whether they, where, wherever they live. Throughout this journey, one thing has become increasingly clear to her. If you want to lift a society up, you need to stop keeping women down. In this moving, and it's very moving and very personal, and it's also very compelling. So in this moving, personal, and compelling book, Melinda shares lessons she's learned from the inspiring people she's met during her work and travels around the world. As she writes in the introduction, that is why I had to write this book, to share the stories of people who have given focus and urgency to my life. I want all of us to see ways we can lift women up where, they, where we live. Linda provides an unforgettable narrative backed by startling data as she presents the issues that most need our attention, from child marriage to lack of access to family planning to gender inequality in the workplace. And for the first time, she writes about her personal life. As I said, it is very personal and the road to equality in her own marriage. She talks about her decision 
after she had just before she had her first child not to go back to work and it actually really threw her husband bull throughout she shows how there can never there has never been more opportunity to change the world and ourselves she writes with emotion candor and grace and she introduces us to remarkable women and shows the power of connecting with one another when we lift others up they lift us up too that's the moment of lift how Empowering Women Changes the World by Melinda Gates. And because Melinda Gates is who she is, the book has had a lot of media attention, and it is quite a, an important book. Now we're getting to the last few books, the last few minutes, thrillers. The first one is True Scandi Crime, The Chestnut Man, written by Soren Feistrup. He is the writer of the TV program, the TV series, The Killing. The police make a terrible discovery in a suburb of Copenhagen. A young woman has been killed and dumped at a playground. One of her hands has been cut off, and above her hangs a small doll made of chestnuts. Young detective Naya Thulin is assigned the case. Her partner is Mark Hess, a burnt-out investigator who's just been kicked out of Europol's headquarters in The Hague. They soon discover a mysterious piece of evidence on the chestnut, ma- the chestnut man, evidence connecting it to a girl who went missing a year earlier and is presumed dead, the daughter of politician Rosa Hartung. A man confessed to her murder and the case has, is, has long since been solved. Soon afterwards, another, man, another woman is found murdered, along with another chestnut man. Dulin and Hess suspect that there's a connection between the Hartung case, the murdered woman, and a killer who is spreading fear throughout Denmark. But what is the connection? This is the Chestnut Man, classic Scandi crime. Now from a cloudy, cold, snowbound country in northern Europe, we're going to sun-drenched Australia for another thriller. Jane Harper has written, this is her third book. The first was The Drive, the second Force of Nature. Now this is The Lost Man. She is fast becoming the Australian thriller writer. Two brothers meet at a remote border of their vast cattle properties under the unrelenting sun of the outback. In an isolated part of Australia, they are each other's nearest neighbour, their homes hours apart. They are at the Stockman's Grave, a landmark so old that no one can remember who is buried there. But today the scant shadow is cast, it casts was the last hope for their middle brother, Cameron. The Bright's family's quiet existence is thrown into grief and anguish. Something had been troubling Cameron Bright. Did he choose to walk to his death? Because if he didn't, the isolation of the outback leaves few suspects. This is, we're going from Scandi thrillers to Australian thrillers. And the last one for today, Twisted by Steve Cavanaugh. With a title like that, you know you're in for a number of twists along the way. The book starts off, author's note. This, but the author's note is part of the book. This will be my last book. I won't write another. The reasons should be clear by the time you've come to the end of the story. That's an interesting word story. Is this a true story? Is it a memoir or fiction? I can't say. You may have found this book on the true crime shelf or in the thriller section of your local bookstore. It doesn't matter. Forget about that. The only two things you need to know. One, on my specific instructions, my publishers have not edited this text. 
there have been editorial notes, structural edits, or other outside interference. It's just you and me. Two, from here on in, don't believe a single word you read. J.T. LeBeau, California, 2018. The book's called Twisted, written by Steve Cavanaugh. And with that type of an introduction, you know there are many twists. It's great, twisty, thriller writing. And until next week when we interview two big international names in the world of books, Simon Sebag Montefiore and Heather Morris. Good Shabbos and keep reading.